Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service this morning. I'm happy to see you here and happy to see the sunshine. The songs that we picked out as a music team, we did a couple weeks ago, actually, um, but we decided to, the other Sunday we did creation to um, our rapture all in one. This time we're telling the story of the gospel, but it starts with the same song. So Glorious Day works for both. It tells the story of Jesus dying for our sins and him rising again and paying the punishment for our sins. And it also told the story of of the Bible through it. So it's a great song. So we're going to stand and sing that one again to start off with. filled with his praises one day when sin was as black as could be Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin dwelt among men my example is he the word became flesh and the light shined among his glory revealed living he loved me dying he saved me buried he carried my sins far away rising he justified freely forever one day he's coming oh glory Despised and rejected, bearing our sins, my Redeemer is He. Hands that heal nations, stretched out on a tree, and took the nails for me. Living, He loved me, dying, He saved me. He 
We got, uh, the music team got a really nice text from one of the younger members of our congregation just saying how meaningful that song was to her and that it brought tears to her eyes and I just reviewed in my head the words to that chorus of that song, living he loved me, um, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away and what a powerful message that is. Let the poor say I am rich. 
morning. Uh, isn't it nice that we got a place to come into? 
uh, warm and whatnot, you know, these cooler mornings and, and nights and whatnot. We're pretty blessed in, uh, in our area, that's for sure. So, uh, welcome everybody. Uh, we'll do our call to worship, uh, if it's there in the bulletin. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. I'll just uh, open with uh, prayer and then uh, Keith will come up after me. So just bow with me. Dear Lord, we just uh, give thanks that we have this building and uh, that we are able to worship here together as a congregation. We just pray that uh, Pastor Glenn and Gloria, you'll be with them this morning. And we pray for Tom as, uh, you know, the family member. He's got big shoes to fill as we listen. And uh, we know that he'll say the right things and uh, that we'll be able to hear him and uh, your message through him. We just uh, pray for the upcoming week uh, for all of us in attendance and those that couldn't be here today. In your name we pray. Amen. Reading Ephesians chapter 1, 1 to 14. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesians, the faithful in, in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he has chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he precedes us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves in him we have redemption through his blood through the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in, in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be the praise, might be the praise of his glory and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. found out that I missed something this morning. The battery in my hearing aid just said it's dead or dying, so this doesn't do me much good. Privileged to be with you today. I uh, called Glenn on, uh, I better be careful what I say here, Brother Glenn, make sure that we get this right, on Thursday to see if he needed any information for what I was prepared for this morning. And he says, oh, that's all, I did that before I left. So you can call Chris, or I said, forget it. We'll go with the flow. We're going well question this for you this morning. Have you ever heard these words? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Now I know that question preceding it was redundant. We hear that often. And uh, you know it probably off by heart. There's seven verses. And I won't read them all. The last verse, verse 7, says, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I was thinking about that this morning. We think in earthly terms so much that even this hymn says, when we've been there 10,000 years, once we get into eternity, Time is irrelevant, and yet we're thinking in terms of years, even when we anticipate eternity. John Newton, who was the author of that hymn, wrote it in 1773. He came back, he came sort of face to face with Jesus Christ on board ship during a horrendous North Atlantic storm on, a board, on board a slave ship. When he got back to England, he stayed there, got married, he studied to become a pastor, and he preached until age 81. His life theme was the grace of God. We're all familiar with or know about financial bankruptcy. We know about moral bankruptcy. You know, a person who doesn't have any moral uh, 
qualities, it seems, at all, or at least none of decent ones. We also need to think about spiritual bankruptcy. And the point here that I'm trying to underline is that we are all spiritually bankrupt. All are spiritually bankrupt. Bankrupt. It makes absolutely no difference how well we are doing spiritually or how accepted we are or approved we may be socially. The fact is, you and I are spiritually bankrupt. Except for Jesus, absolutely everyone who has ever lived has been spiritually bankrupt. You know the verses in Romans, start in chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Or chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jumping to chapter 6, verse 23, the last part of the verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life. We, the spiritually bankrupt, owe a debt that we cannot repay. That's why, that's the definition of bankrupt. We can't pay what we owe. But Jesus. I have come to love those two words so much in the last years. It just changes everything. But Jesus. But Jesus offered to pay our debt. What we owe, we can't pay, but Jesus comes along and he says, I'll pay it for you. So we learn that salvation, redemption, debt forgiveness is offered by God and it's a gift. It's entirely by grace, through faith, not of our own efforts, not by anything that we can do, in other words, works. So that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. All we have to do is admit, or in other words, file bankruptcy. File spiritual bankruptcy and accept the grace of God. That God would do this is absolutely amazing. Paul starts his letter to the Ephesians, to the Ephesian church, by describing the believer's identity. And that's what we read in our scripture reading this morning. If you ever take the time to just sit and think through it, or to use a good spiritual term, meditate on it, it's, it's mind-boggling. He chose us before the creation of the world chosen before the creation of the world chose us to be holy chose us to be blameless in his sight in love he chose predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ and what's more it's according to his pleasure According to his will. For what reason? 
to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely gives us through the one he loves, which is Jesus. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sins. And it's in accordance with, you could almost say it's uh, proportional to, his, that which he proposed, provided in Christ Jesus. In accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished, he doesn't give miserly. He doesn't give little tidbits here and there along the way, sort of to keep us on the hook. So we keep coming back for a little bit more. He lavished this on us in Christ Jesus. He lavished us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Jesus Christ. So that is the believer's identity in Christ. That's who we are once we surrender to Christ, receive the gift, the debt payment that he has already offered, and enter into his family because of that. He chooses us. Moving on to chapter 2. This is really how we get into chapter 1. So, chapter 2 is how we enter into, how we have received, how we qualify, if you can use that word, for the position that is described in chapter 1. And it's grace. It's all the grace of God. And God's amazing grace is available to all of us, to everyone. Everyone who will admit personal inability and accept God's offer. We accept God's offer, by the way, on God's terms. We don't bargain with God and say, well, God, you're offering this, I'm offering this. Can we work something out? There is no bargaining with God about salvation. It's his way only. So let's take a quick look, if we can, at the meaning of grace. What is grace? Well, one definition or illustration might be it's a table prayer that we, we say before we enjoy our meal. Or we could use the acrostic for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That works. 
Or we could go theologically. Grace is kindness shown by a superior to an inferior, and there is no obligation on the part of the superior to show this kindness. So it's, it's just totally a gift without any deserving or earning. I came across this list about the grace of God. It goes like this. It is the delightful realization that inability is victory. It is the divine energy that follows emptying. It is the presence of God in the active tense. It is the meaning of free taken to its limits. It is doing what you cannot do. It is God living in us, doing what only he can do. It is spiritual power in a physical container. It is supernatural ability in a natural environment. It is uncommon power in common vessels. It is Christ in you, in me, the hope of glory. Interestingly, I don't believe that we will understand grace until we experience it. Well, you can talk about it, and you can explore various areas of it, but to understand it, we won't until we experience it. Without God's grace to interpret it, we cannot recognize it. We must have God's grace in order to understand it. God's grace. It's almost like a circular argument. But nevertheless, if you want to understand grace, you need to accept the grace God is offering so that he can come into your life, forgive you, move in, cleanse you, and move you towards what he has in mind for you. And then you can begin to understand it because you have a new understanding of God, of sin, and all that is related to it. You won't understand it until you experience it. You need God's grace to interpret it, because we can't recognize it otherwise. And yet, here's another thing. Once you have become a recipient of the grace of God, you can't do without it. Everything that you do without it robs you of it, and every time you presume upon it, you lose it. Why? Because the moment grace appears deserved, it disappears. The moment grace is co-sponsored, it dies. So, although we can never totally understand the marvels of the grace of God, we do not need to totally understand grace to appreciate it. So, back to another definition. Grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only condemnation and judgment. <clears throat> From the receiver's point of view, 
That's you and me. Grace is totally unearned. It is undeserved kindness or favor from another. God offers us his grace. Which means I've got to ask you a question. Have you received, accepted, experienced God's grace? Has that become a reality for you, between you and God? Quick look at a couple of examples in Scripture about the grace of God. Uh, New Testament gives us several examples of Jesus extending grace. For example, the woman accused of adultery... And by the law, she could rightly be stoned to death for her sin. Jesus demonstrated grace to her. Then there's the account of Lazarus' death. His sisters, Mary and Martha, both said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, what kind of an accusation is that? I think we do that fairly often with God, with Jesus. If you had been around, this wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have this tragedy, God, if you had been here doing something. If you had answered my prayers, you know I would have prayed. It's a strong accusation these sisters made against Jesus. And yet Jesus took it with grace. We also have the stories in the New Testament in Luke, the Good Samaritan, for example, chapter 10. And there's also the prodigal son in chapter 15. They are examples of grace. There's grace in how the Samaritan treated the injured traveler and how the father treated the son when he returned. Of course, the ultimate demonstration of grace is God coming to earth and dying in order to provide and to offer to sinful man, to you and to me, the free gift of forgiveness and salvation. What are some of the results of grace in our lives? Well, in his book, Transforming Grace, Jerry Bridges says this, one of the best-kept secrets among Christians today is Jesus paid it all. I mean all. He not only purchased your forgiveness of sin and your ticket to heaven, he purchased every blessing and every answer to prayer that you will ever receive. Then he goes on to say this. We are afraid to tell, even to ourselves, that we don't have to work anymore. The work is all done. But we're afraid. We're afraid that if we truly, really 
believe that, we're just going to slack off on all these Christian duties that we have. If everyone believes that, nothing's going to happen. Nothing will get done. They'll just say, well, Jesus did it all. I don't have to do anything. But I think there is still a deeper core issue. And that is that we don't really believe that we are still bankrupt. You know, too often, we who are such good Christians, praise God for salvation and it's all by grace and we didn't deserve it. But when it comes to living life, we live as if, man, I, I got to do something to, to show God that I deserve this salvation, that I deserve his acceptance, that I deserve everything that he's promised me, both now and into the future. We don't really believe that we are still bankrupt before God. It is only in Jesus Christ that we are accepted for salvation and even after salvation. We have come into God's kingdom salvation by grace alone, solely on the merit of another person, Jesus. But we're now trying to pay our own way by our performance. And those of you familiar with your Bible, I would call that Galatianism. Saved by grace, but then keep your salvation by what you are doing. So Jerry Bridges concludes this. To the extent that you are clinging to any vestiges of self-righteousness or are putting any confidence in your own spiritual attainments, to that degree, you are not living by the grace of God in your life. End of quote. So realizing that Jesus paid all my debt, and that there is no possibility of me going into debt again spiritually will have several consequences, implications. And it will be lived out, uh, interesting, along these lines. I found this in Chuck Swindoll's book, Grace Awakening. There's four of them. He says, we will have a greater appreciation of the gifts that God has given us. Gifts like salvation, life, laughter, music, beauty, friendship, encouragement, forgiveness. Two, we will spend less time and energy being critical of and concerned about others' choices. When we get a hold of grace, we can allow others' room to make their own decisions in life, even though we may, may choose otherwise. I thought about that definition or that 
point there and I thought of today's examples and all of these disagreements among churches and Christians about whether or not we should wear masks or whether or not we should have social distancing or whether or not we should get the vaccine, all of this current stuff being debated and argued. If we truly really grab hold of the grace of God, we can give others freedom for their own decisions and not be not feel like we are being confirmed in our decisions when we convince others to do like we are doing. Third point he makes is that we will become more tolerant and less judgmental. As we get involved in pursuing grace, we will no longer be laying guilt trips on those with whom we disagree. And fourth, we will take a giant step toward maturity. I think all of us are prone to believe in grace for our salvation and in grace for our eternity in glory or glorification. But believing in and living by grace right now during this time when God is sanctifying us is quite a different matter. This is where it gets, well, boots to the pavement. This is where it gets worked out moment by moment, day by day, in our relationships, either at home or in church or in the community at work or wherever else. And so, starting at verse 4, chapter 2 in Ephesians, But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in offenses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And, verse 6, he raised us up together with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice how often Paul repeats Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that you can boast. For we are his, King James word, workmanship, this translation, creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we can do them. I've never preached from Ephesians from this particular angle, but I am working on it right now. And it's this. 
stems from verse 10. For we are his creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we can do them. I've never really seriously thought through the good works thing. Biblically, I guess I could say it might be not quite accurate. But it's this way. When we think of good works, we are thinking of the things that we, the positive things we can do more on behalf of others or for the good of both ourselves and others or the good for our church or the good for our country or our province or the good for the world. Something that is good and would impress God or, or be at least positive and in line with the word of what the word of God says. Then it struck me, if, this is, if Paul is saying this so early in the book of Ephesians, is it possible that the good works God is pointing at are listed through the rest of the book of Ephesians? So imagine, as you read through and think through the book of Ephesians, think good works. And I'll jump a chapter or two. We get to chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. Chapter 5 really talks about relationships. Do you mean to tell me that our relationships could qualify as good works? Our relationship, husbands to wife, wife to husband, parents to children, children to parents, employees to employers, employers to employees. And then we get to chapter 6 and it talks about putting on the entire armor of God. Could it be that putting on the armor of God is part of good works? Give it some thought. Think through the book of Ephesians from that angle. See what strikes you. But to finish off this morning, may we echo the words, these words, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. All of these benefits listed are for each and every one of us by God's grace. My concern is, do we demonstrate, share, communicate to others the grace that we have received from God. Or, to rephrase that thought, how does my neighbor benefit from the grace that I have received? How does my neighbor benefit from the grace that I have received? Let's pray. Lord, your grace is mind-boggling. 
it's virtually impossible to comprehend. And yet, you provide it for us. You give it to us. We can receive it when we receive, we do receive it when we receive you as our Savior and continue to surrender to you. Thank you. And Lord, may we be marveling at your grace right now and may we go from here today, tomorrow, and the week, weeks that follow immersed in your great grace for us. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Thanks. That was a great message. I like that last thought that you left us with. I was thinking that exact thought when you read that verse, and it had never struck me before quite that same way either. <clears throat> Let's sing, stand together and sing all the way that my Savior leads me.
singing. 